Hi, Pastor Rob here from Blessed Hope Chapel and RobCartledgeMinistries.com. What you hold is true. Is it really truth? Will what you believe get you through on Judgment Day? Are you keeping to the pattern of sound teaching held out in Scripture? In this series, Truth, Judgment and Eternity, I intend to deliver messages that check the solidness of our Christian foundation so as to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to us as Christ's ambassadors on this earth. to just read just if you go back to one four where it says grace and peace can everyone see that let's go back grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from jesus christ who is the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth and then it says still in verse five to him who loves us and has freed us or washed us and redeemed, uh, released us, some translations say, from our sins by his blood. Okay, that's about as far as I was able to get because I got so much out of that verse that I was able, I wanted to get another verse in this today, but I couldn't do it. So I've uh, titled this Faithful Preeminent King. The Faithful Preeminent King. You'll see why in a second. Just firstly, just studying the book of Revelation, it will give us a deeper commitment to the Lord. As we go through the book of Revelation, we're going to get a revelation of Jesus Christ to, in so many different ways and, and to such depth that our commitment should get really, really strong in Christ. It promotes the fear of the Lord in us as we see that Jesus' judgments uh, judgment day approaching and the things that his judgments upon the earth the fear of God is going to grip us it will give us a stronger concern for lost souls for people that are going to be lost uh, for eternity it's going to help us to see that it's a really it's a very real thing that's happening in the world especially as we see things taking place in the world and we're reading about it in scripture and we know okay well what else is in scripture judgment day eternal fire etc it's going to help us to really you know get the right mindset to live in this day and age it answers the biggest questions in life not just where we came from but where we are going and we know that it is totally relevant to the time in which we're living you know if we'd read this a hundred years ago it wouldn't have been relevant as much but now all the prophetic elements are relevant not just the the messages or the letters to the churches you know what i mean there's so many things that are relevant in the, in the book of Revelation at this, at this time. It is a book where God is radically glorified. We see Jesus in glory. We see Jesus high and lifted up. We see him worshipped by angels. So Jesus Christ is put in, his, in the place of honour which he deserves to be in, where you might not have seen that in the Gospels to the same degree. Amen. Uh, it gives the church the most hard-hitting corrections. It really does slap the church in the face. If you read through the letters to the seven churches, and these letters are going to have relevance to us in every single church. is going to have elements of it that is going to be relevant that you can, we can take from it and be corrected by. And I think that's a, the, the word correction is one thing that the church really needs to embrace in this day and age. It's better to be corrected now 
and get into the kingdom of heaven and have a good judgment than not to be corrected now and then get there and get corrected and be thrown or discarded for eternity. Amen. A faithful witness. Revelation 1.4 says, Grace and peace to you. That's the only element of that verse I want to take into verse 5. From Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. He's the faithful witness. Are we called to be witnesses? Yeah, every one of us. Witness comes from the Greek word uh, martus, and it, it means one who is a spectator, or it can mean one who is a spectator, or one who testifies for someone. If you go into court, you're a witness in court, you're a witness to something that you, you saw. Or the faithful interpreters of God's counsel are called God's witnesses. So someone interprets Scripture well is called a witness to what they read and understand. So that's the, that's the official or the meaning of the Greek word. But when we hear the word martus, or where do we, which we get the word martyr from, what do we think of? Dying for belief, right? So it came to mean, so the word martus or martyr came to mean one who lays down their life in death without recanting their testimony and faith in Jesus Christ. That's my own definition, because I looked up the definitions in the dictionary, and I like that one better. It came to mean one who lays down their life in death without recanting their testimony. It came to mean that because the early Christians were known as the witnesses. They were known as martus. How would you say it plurally in Greek? Martyr. Martis, yeah. So they came to be known as that because they noticed that all the witnesses, anyone who was witnessing for Jesus Christ, was suffering a terrible, painful, torturous death. And after they saw thousands and thousands and thousands of them die, the, the witnesses of Jesus Christ were dying for the faith, then the term martyr changed in its meaning to adopt that. That's someone who lays down their life for the faith. So we're called to witness, and, and I should have really brought this up, but I didn't. But Jesus is called the faithful witness, isn't he? The one who first laid down his life as a witness to the Word of God, as a witness to the acts of humanity, as the sinful nature. And not only that, I believe while he was on the cross that all the, um, the conduct of humanity streamed through his mind. He would have seen every individual circumstance res respecting the conduct of mankind throughout all time streaming through his mind. He would have witnessed thousands, millions, and even billions of people and all their sin. Now, do you think a, a normal human could cope with those kinds of revelations? For him to have been nailed on the cross for the sin of men, he would have had to carry the weight of the sin of men. So if that, if the, if that volume of, of revelation ran through my mind, my brain would explode literally would not be able to cope with that kind of visual, that kind of revelation. But we're not talking about a normal man here. We're talking about God. The conduct of mankind ran through his mind. Why? Because he knew the conduct of mankind. He's God. He can see it all. He can see every individual circumstance respecting the conduct of mankind, can't he? Quite easy for God. He sees everything. 
He knows what a little worm is doing in Mexico burrowing through some mountain range right at the moment. You know what I mean? He knows what that worm is doing. He knows every little thing. He knows its life. He knows where it's been. He knows where it's going. You know what I mean? God, there's nothing outside of the realm of God's knowledge. So when Jesus was on there, he knew what he was on there for. He could see it, pictured it, and embraced it and died for it. And that's why it says that he can carry our sins. Why can he carry it? Well, carry us and, 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 and free us from sin because he's God. He had to be God. No normal man could do that. That's why the Jehovah Witnesses, the Christian Delphians, there's many other Christian science, etc., they don't believe that Jesus is God. And, there's, and the Muslims, they don't believe that Jesus is God. They've missed it. Don't, who, who would agree with me that the, com, the complete total, um, I suppose, revelation of the New Testament, the revelation that, that we get from the New Testament is that Jesus is God. Who would agree is that that is one of the most profound of all the revelations? And if you can read the New Testament and miss that, you've missed out on the most important part of what Jesus came to reveal. We missed that Jesus is God. And in, even in this verse that we're reading now, in Revelation 1.5, if we go back to it, we're going to see how this even relates to his, his deity as well. Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead. Some people will say, see, he's firstborn from the dead. That means he's a creation, and they, they miss it. They miss what it means. Firstborn comes from the word prototokos. Prototokos it means first in time or preeminent, specifically refers to Christ as the first to experience glorification. Okay? It's where we get the word prototype from, the first off the, off the, uh, off the line sort of thing. So he did that, and there's a reason why he had to die and become the firstborn from among the dead. It is important to understand that Jesus was with God in the beginning, in John 1-2. So let's go to John 1-2. John 1, 2, and it says, he was with God in the beginning. That is what it says right there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, we all know that the Word references Jesus, and it just says there, the Word was God. So how can someone who reads the King James Version of the Bible, because who's got a King James here? No one's reading from a King James? I'm pretty sure it says the same thing, the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He was uh, through him all things were made. Like we're talking about Jesus Christ being God. Keeping this in mind, we then realize for the that for the Son of God, who has who is as God as the Father is of the same nature. That's why they referenced or referred to him as the Son of God. To become a man, he had to gain a new nature. I, I learned this from William Lane Craig, and I thought it was a really uh, an amazing way of looking at it. Jesus came to earth. He had to gain a new nature that as God he did not possess. Before Jesus came to earth, he was not, or he didn't have human nature, did he? He was God. He came to earth and he put on a new nature. It was like he was clothed with a flesh nature. He had to gain a human nature and to be made a little lower than the angels. That's what it says in Hebrews 2. Let's go to that. And I'm just going to read this to get, get it in context. Every time I write one single scripture to read, when I look at it in the context, I have to read the rest around it because it's so often 
you don't see it for what it says if you just read it singly. Context is, is so important. 2 verse 5, and it says, It is not to angels that he subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And in putting everything under his feet, God left nothing that is not not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Did you catch that? At present, we do not see everything subject to Jesus. Why? He's not here ruling, is he? But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We see Jesus made a little lower than the angels and he's now crowned with glory and honor. So he's sitting on the throne in the kingdom of God, but he's yet to come and possess the earth. So why was it important that Jesus be the firstborn prototype from the dead and first to receive glorification and to receive an imperishable body? Well, we find the why that is in Colossians 1, 15 to 18. So if we can flick over there. All right. And I love this scripture, one of my favorite scriptures. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Okay, so he's the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, we could go through and study each of those words and find out just how God Jesus is. Is he God? Yep. I want, you know why I tell you this, and I know you, no one here has any trouble with believing that Jesus is God. But you've got to know where all the scriptures are when you confront people who don't believe that Jesus is God. And the best, there's three places you've got to um, take note of. One is, of course, in John 1, the opening few verses. The next is Colossians 1, 15 to around about 20. 1, 15 to 20. And also Hebrews 1, the opening verses of Hebrews are the some of the best scriptures just to point out the the deity of Christ so clearly that to deny it you just have to you just deny it that's all you're doing you can't there's nothing that you can say against it you just have to deny it and say it's not what it says but anyway 115 and the reason I always go over this ground too is because the deity of Christ is going to be the most attacked doctrine in these coming days this is going to be the doctrine that's going to be attacked most viciously and if you think about it the Muslims consider it shirk to believe that Jesus is God. That means you it's the worst sin, it's the most vile sin, unforgivable sin in Islam is to believe that Jesus is God. Right? So when, you, when you're confronted by Muslims, you need to know this. But then the only other problem is they say our Bible's corrupted. So how do you lead them down that road? So um, that book I've, I've lent you, Dave, is a really good one to read about that. That's the one you gave me for Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. A brilliant book. Really, really good. 
Um, okay, so Colossians 1, 15, 18. And go to verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. And then it tells us why. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. So in everything. See, if God wanted to embrace humanity, those that would believe in him, and embrace them as his own, he realized he had to become them to fully embrace them as his own. God had to step down from heaven to show us how much he loved us, to, to point it out, you know, if you can lay your life down for your, your, you know, your brothers and sisters, that's, that's the ultimate act of love, isn't it? So that's what Jesus had to do. And in doing that and to be raised again, he, would, he, he might in everything have the supremacy. Then we can say Jesus is God. Jesus is supreme. He's the firstborn from among the dead. He's where he should be. Amen. And let's go to Acts 26 as well. Acts 26, 22 to 23, and it says, But I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. And I'm, Yeah, this is Paul. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, so that Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. As first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to the Gentiles. Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Is he ruler of the kings of the earth now? He's not down here ruling them now, is he? But does he ultimately rule them in eternity? Yeah. Because they're going to have to face him at judgment. They're, they're um, ignoring that fact. So they, they're, they're living and, and conducting affairs as if there is no God. But ultimately, we know, the Bible says, that they're going to have to face Jesus Christ on that day and be accountable for what they've done. While they lived on the earth. Ephesians 1.20. Let's slip over there as well. Go back to just the end of 119 and it says, That power is like the working of his mighty strength. Can you see that? That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. God has placed him far above. Now, in saying that, was he not far above before? He was far above before, wasn't he? But what happened? He had to become a little lower than the angels. He had to put on a human nature. He had to live a sinless life. He had, he had to suffer many things. And then he had to die and go down into the death realm. Then he had to come up. And then he had, he had to appear before the disciples. Then he had to be raised up to be seated at the right hand of God far above. And in that raising, he would receive his imperishable body. 
So that's what it means that he was raised up. It doesn't mean that he wasn't there before. It's just that once he put on that human nature, he had to go through a test and come out with flying colors. Revelation now, Revelation 17. Let's slip over to that. Verse 12. And it says this, The ten horns you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. And they will make war against the lamb. And I love the wording here. But the lamb will overcome them. Why? Because he is Lord of lords and he's king of kings. No other explanation needed. He's Lord of lords and king of kings. How can you beat God? Come on, man. How stupid are they? That's the only explanation. Yeah, it's pretty much that. It's like get the finger and flick him like a marble. Flick the enemies of God like marbles. It's just so stupid to come and fight against God. You can't win. You know, if God wanted to, he could click his fingers and all their atoms would just disassemble and they'd just flop down. But he's going to not let it be that easy for him. He's going to, you know, tread the winepress of the wrath of God. You know, this battle of Armageddon, the blood will rise to a horse's bridle. There'll be that many people in there fighting against God. You'd have to be the most deceived people on the planet to think you could take on God. To say, here we come, Jesus, get ready. You know, make sure we're on the right side. Amen. We've got to get as many on the right side as we possibly can. Because this, the battle of Armageddon is, is coming. Revelation 19, verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has written this name, King of kings and Lord of lords. So who's got written that name? Jesus. Right? Because he's got a flesh. He's got flesh and he's got King of kings and Lord of lords written on him. So that's Jesus. King of kings, Lord of lords. Keep that name in mind. 1 Timothy 6.14. Let's go to there. To keep the commandment without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So who's the King of kings and Lord of lords? God. And there's another scripture that pertains to the deity of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is considered King of kings and Lord of lords. And it says here, God, the blessed, only ruler, King of kings and Lord of lords who alone is immortal. The Illuminati got to wake up. They can't become immortal. They're not going to be immortal. They've got a lake of burning sulfur to look forward to. They're eternal in the sense that they'll know where they are are forever, but they're going to be burning forever if they don't recant of disbelief or non-belief and all their sinful ways. Revelation 3.14 And in this context, when I use the word Illuminati, I'm referring to those that are going to come against God in the last days, is the generals and all those that are gathered together. It tends to be the name of the group, the organization that Satan rules, his his henchmen in a sense, or his leaders and those ten horns. You know, it's tend to be taken on that sort of title, hasn't it, in these days? All right, 3.14, 
to the angel of the church of Laodicea. Now, who's writing to the churches? Who? John's writing it, but who? Who? Yeah, yeah, Jesus said, write this. So who's writing it? It's like Paul wrote in prison, but he didn't actually do the writing. He had someone write for him, but it was still Paul's writing it. It's Jesus Christ. He writes seven of the epistles. I believe there's 21 in the 21 epistles written by Paul, John, Peter, James, Jude. And then there's seven more epistles written by Jesus himself in the book of Revelation. So it makes it 28 because it's multiples of seven. That's how the Bible tends to, tends to flow. Then they say, well, how come there's only 66 books in the Bible in this one? Even God's got that one covered because in the Psalms, there's five books of the Psalms. There's book one, two, three, four, five. So if Psalms one, then you've got four more, and that adds up the four more needed to make it 70 books in the Bible. He's worked it all out. <laughs> Revelation 3.14, and it says, To the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, so that's Jesus um, telling John to write to the angel, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. The Amen. So Jesus called himself the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the ruler of God's creation. Who rules God's creation? Jesus Christ. Yep, he's God. Only God can rule God's creation. Revelation one five. Let's just go there quickly. Well, I'll just read it. Actually, it just says it here. Revelation one five. To him who loves us and has freed, and the other translations have different words for that word freed. They have washed and released uh, us from our sins by his blood. Now, I like the word freed. I like the word released, and I like the word washed, and I see them as, you know slightly different meanings for the same word and that's how greek is isn't it many words have have you need quite a few english words to encapsulate the one greek word so the power of the cross is to wash away the sins we've committed release us from the hold of sin and free us by the holy spirit to not sin in the future to free us from them coming back and taking hold of us again so we've been washed amen We've been re- we should have been released. If we're not released, we've got to keep on praying, God, release us from the hold of sin and free us by the Holy Spirit to not sin anymore so that we can walk continually in him. Because Jesus is the one who's freed us from our sins by his blood. He's the one who's washed us and freed us. Right, So it's, it's hard to, if you haven't been freed, to say Jesus is the one who's freed me if you haven't been freed. You know what I'm saying? And look, I've been a Christian, and more, more of the time that I've been a Christian, I've been a Christian 20-plus years, more of that time I have not been free from sin than I have been free. I've walked more in sin as a Christian than being freed from sin. It's not the way it should be. And then I look over my life as a Christian and I wonder, aha, uh-huh, now I know why. I haven't been effective for Christ 
Now I realize why I haven't done what I should have done for Christ in all those years. And I'm only starting to now walk in what God's called me to walk in. And even now, I still struggle with that sin nature coming back and rearing up its ugly head and trying to pull me back into sin again. It's very effective because, this, and especially in this time, there are so many things pulling us into sin. It's like every medium possible. And if you're not sinning, you just then, you know, um, I don't know, you're trying to live for Christ, you're trying to do what you can for Christ, and you're trying to be free from sin, but if you're not in sin, you're, there's a lot of the time we find ourselves in limbo. Who knows what I'm talking about? Not even mindful of Christ. Sorry? Yeah, always, always obstacles. Praying helps. We've got to stay in prayer, and that's why Paul tells us to stay in, constantly in prayer. But it seems to be like that. It seems to be that we're always struggling with either um, apathy. Who knows what I'm talking about? Just wake up and you're sort of like, you know, in a daze. Where do I go here? And you go and do your prayer time and you come out of your prayer time and you're in a daze again. I don't know whether that's what we were sort of joking about before, which is things that are sort of coming against us through our water, through the air we breathe, through um, all the mediums and, and even... You know, we can go as far as, you know, I've been reading and studying about microwaving and all these other things that are going on in the world today. And just the, the general, the weather. You know, there's a lot of people out there who will just think it's ridiculous to say these things. But I remember a time when I used to feel good all the time. And I know I'm older, <laughs> right? But I remember a time when the older people used to feel good all the time. Back in the 70s and the 80s, people weren't feeling anywhere near the oppression that you see today. And I think there's an increase in something. And, and just keep your minds open because there's, if, if the Bible tells us that Satan is the God of this earth, then we've got to question, well, if, that, if he's the God of this earth and if, if I was Satan and as evil as him, what would I try to be doing to humans who I hate? You know what I'm saying? All right. Answer this question, is fluoride in the water? Is there fluoride? What's fluoride do to your brain? Yeah, makes it dumb. You know, dumbs us down. Fluoride's in the water. So we can't deny that fluoride's in the water. What we end up denying is what fluoride does. Oh, it's for your teeth. No, toothpaste is for your teeth. You're not supposed to ingest it. You're not supposed to drink it in the gallons you're supposed to brush it and spit it out. And actually, you can even, toothpaste is better without fluoride. So I've read. So you can check that out. Ah, okay. Dental, dental fluorosis. Is the enamel wearing away because of excessive amounts of fluoride eroding away? Mm, okay. They deny it. We'll look that one up, everyone. Fluoride, do they really care for our teeth that much that they're willing to spend millions and millions and millions of dollars dumping it into our waterways? Do they really care for our teeth that much or would they rather us go and pay for our own dental care? That's right. In your stomach, yeah, not in your mouth, which is only there a moment. 
a lot of the time you just wash it straight down. It goes down in a second, doesn't it? Yeah. 1 John 3, 1 to 10. This is my last scripture. Just while you're in 1 John, just go over to 1 John 5, verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. 3 verse 1 and it says how great is the love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God isn't that amazing and that is what we are the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him dear friends now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known as in our imperishable bodies, and the powers of the imperishable bodies that we will receive. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Let's have a look at that. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, and we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. How does that hope purify us? Well, just on the top, off the top of my head when I read that, I thought, yeah, we get pure because we are mindful of who we are. We're children of God. We're not children of the world. And that knowledge and knowing that Jesus is going to come, we're going to receive an imperishable body if we pass the test, if we live it out to the end of our life, that makes us live a pure life. That makes us live a holy life. Because the desire to make Jesus happy the desire to bless him by our life makes us pure. Because you know what? You think about it, the way you lived before you knew Jesus, before you had anyone to please like Jesus. Would you do some pretty bad things if you, you didn't feel guilt or remorse? Yeah? But now that we are in Jesus, we don't do those things, do we? Because we want to please our Saviour. So everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. He appeared so that he would take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Now read these words carefully and take them to heart. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. We, don't, we should not sin anymore if we live in him. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Do you know how long I was a Christian and I did not know my Savior? I lived as a Christian for many years and did not know Jesus because I continued to sin. And if I continue to sin, the word tells me I don't know him. They're scary words because if I had died at those times, I don't know how I would have fared in judgment. Because if we live in him, we don't sin. And it keeps on going. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. So don't let these grace teachers lead you astray. Don't let these teachers that have watered down the doctrine of salvation lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. How dare you call yourself righteous and live in sin? How anyone who is out there as a Christian and they say, I'm a righteous Christian, yet they live in sin. Come on, he who is righteous 
He who lives in righteous is righteous. It's as simple as that. Or he who does what is right. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Am I, am I saying this or does it cut like a knife to read it? <laughs> right, this is the Bible. Why don't grace teachers teach this chapter? Stops the money coming in. Good answer. <laughs> yep. So he who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So if the devil's work's not destroyed in your life, you haven't been saved. No one who's born of God, listen to this, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. Do you know, I, 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 my wife and I were in church for many, many years, and I never heard anyone preach on chapter 3 of 1 John. I didn't hear a sermon on it anywhere, and if I brought it up with anyone, I would end up in an argument. But they wouldn't be arguing me, they'd be arguing the wording. <laughs> no, 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 no. The Bible says that no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed, see, God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning. Guys, we've got to pray for God's seed if we go on sinning. If we are in sin or if we fall into sin, pray for God's seed in us to sprout. God's seed to be in us because he has been born of God. This is how we know, this is the real slap in the face. You know, is John, the Apostle John, depicted as, you know, the Apostle of love, the beautiful John, lovely, sweet John, who leaned back in Jesus and said, who's going to betray you? And, you know, the disciple that Jesus loved the most. I reckon the reason Jesus loved him the most was because he was most like Jesus. His words were just as cutting. And I'm, I, I've read Peter and I've read, read Paul and, and James but you know what? John slaps me in the face the most. John is the hardest hitting of all the epistles, especially 1 John. So this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. If you don't do what is right, you're not a child of God. So the moment you step out and do something wrong, you're not a child of God. Change, repent, and become a child of God again got to repent we've got to keep coming back to him because as long as we live in this world we will sin and you know one john makes this very clear that as long as you live in the world you will sin but you've got to repent you've got to keep coming back so anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of god and neither is anyone who does not love his brother so if you have any anything in your heart where you don't love your brother you're not a child of god so we've got to make sure that we have completely totally forgiven everyone and i believe in relation to this your brother is your christian brothers and sisters but don't forget your physical brothers and sisters as well you know you like my brother i've got a brother and i've got brother-in-laws i've got to love them unconditionally amen all right i'm gonna i'm gonna finish on that so lord thank you for this sermon thank you for helping me through with this uh big bad headache I have, Lord, 
and I, I just pray that you um, just help everyone here to grow from this message today. I pray that you really help us to uh, move forward as a church in the things that you made very, very clear there in 1 John that we can just walk as children of God and not as children of the devil and we can fulfill all that you've called us to in this life and that this church can fulfill what she's here for. Lord, let us not despise the days of small beginnings but understand what you're doing and how you're humbling us and uh, helping us to see um, so many things in relation to our faith through this time. So be with us now, Lord Jesus, and uh, bless this time of fellowship and bless the um, uh, f- uh, prayer meetings coming up next week and all the times that we'll be spending together as a church in fellowship over the weeks to come. So I just pray this in the wonderful name. Be with us now. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you search Rob Cartledge in the iTunes store or go to www.robcartledge.com, you'll see a number of different sermon series uncovering religion, truth, judgment, and eternity, apologetics 101, critical doctrine, and end times. Feel free to check them out.